This is Yudah Kohen, Rit Hazon, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Age Podcast. Tonight is Yom Yerushalayim, the beginning of Jerusalem Day, the 28th of Yar, when the children of Israel return to Jerusalem, which I'm going to argue is a major historical event, not only for the people of Israel, but also for the rest of the world. And with me to discuss the significance of Jerusalem is Zev Ornstein, Director of International Affairs for the City of David Foundation. Zev, welcome Thanks to the show. Thanks for having me. Right, so Yom Yerushalayim, huh? Special day. The truth is, I, to a certain extent, celebrate each day of the Six-Day War. For me, there are six days of celebration to celebrate the victories of Israel and the liberation of different parts of our country. For example, you know, the 26th is the liberation of Gaza. The 27th is the Shomron. The 29th is Hebron, so on and so forth, meaning there are different parts of our country that we return to, that we took possession of during different days of this war. And I think each day is a unique opportunity to celebrate the children of Israel's connection to these different portions of our homeland. So for me, it's really like a six-day holiday, although Yom Yerushalayim, the 28th of Iyar, when we return to Jerusalem, that's the only day on which I actually say Hallel. That's the only day that really becomes like a spiritual day, not just a nationalist holiday. I think maybe I treat the other five days as a nationalist holiday, but Yom Yerushalayim becomes much more of a spiritual holiday. I think there's good reason for that, because mm-hmm. throughout the millennia, where the majority of our people were exiled from our homeland, we wanted to return to all of our homeland. And yeah. yet, in our prayers, when, uh, when we would get married under the wedding canopy, when we would comfort the, the mourners who, who had lost loved ones, we referred to one place in our homeland and one place only, and that was Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean right. that we didn't, we didn't love uh, Hebron or we didn't love Beit El or Shiloh or, or Gaza or the Sinai or, or anywhere else. It just means that Yerushalayim, when we would say next year in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is different than all the others. It doesn't mean that the others aren't special. It's just that Jerusalem is in a category all its own. Right, there's a significance to it. And it's a, a name that often refers to the whole country. Like, uh, it's not just the city of Jerusalem. It's not just, if I forget Jerusalem, I should forget my right hand. I want to go back to my homeland. Like, that was what was being expressed. And uh, Jerusalem was a catch-all term for the entire land. But for me, it's even more than that. It says in the, in the Zohar Kadosh that Hashem, you know, the creator, the author of history, swore that his shekhinah, his presence, his divine presence, would not enter celestial Jerusalem above until the Jewish people enters terrestrial Jerusalem below. Meaning that everything in creation has a back end, like a website. What we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, this is just the surface, but there's a spiritual back end to everything that exists. And Jerusalem, like what we call celestial Jerusalem, is only open as the bridge connecting the physical and spiritual realms, like the portal between our reality and the world beyond our reality, that's only opened when the Jewish people have sovereignty over Jerusalem. Meaning celestial Jerusalem is like the spiritual ideal representing the absolute good from beyond this world, the eternal divine values constantly driving history towards its goal. And then Jerusalem here on earth, like the city that we know is like the physical expression of this celestial Jerusalem above. And even though it appears to us as like an ancient mountain city, it's really this conduit that reveals Hashem's oneness to mankind and enables the flow of divine energy and blessing to the entire world. And that only came about when we returned to Jerusalem. Like that reality, meaning that the world changed. Even our ability to connect to Torah changed. I would argue that the Torah of our ancestors, certainly the Torah that was driving our freedom fighters 2,000 years ago to liberate our country from the Roman Empire, that Torah was driven underground, meaning after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, that Torah became inaccessible to the masses. It was passed on by Rabbi Akiva to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and eventually Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai had to go into hiding where he learned with Eliyahu Navi, and ultimately he took this Torah 
and he shoved it into the Zohar. Meaning the Zohar Kadosh is basically where the deepest secrets of Torah and the aspirations and mission of Am Yisrael is hidden. 2,000 years go by, and that perspective remains the sole property of Torah giants, like the Ramban, like Rabbi Yudah Levi, like uh, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, like the Maharal of Prague, like the Gona Vilna, Rav Kook, but it's still inaccessible to the masses, meaning even what we call religious Zionism during the first few decades of the Zionist movement and the state of Israel was not the Torah of Rav Kook. It was not this ultra-nationalist, ultra-religious, what we see today in what we call the Chardal community. It was like a little bit less religious than the Haredim and a little bit less Zionist than Mapai. And it was only after we returned to Jerusalem in 1967 and Koach Iyar, Yom Yerushalayim, that this Torah became accessible to the masses again. That suddenly institutions sprang up all over our country teaching this perspective, teaching what we could call a mission-oriented Torah that is contextualized in Jewish history and our people's meta-narrative and is actually, it's not just about these fragmented do's and don'ts, but there's actually a goal to history. The nation of Israel has a unique place in that goal, has a unique function in that broader goal, and sovereignty over our land, specifically Jerusalem, opens up that conduit. For me, it's beyond just a national rebirth. It's this new era of human history that begins with Yom Atzma'ut, you know, the day that the nation of Israel came back to life, the day that we went from being a gas form back to a solid again, and then uh, Yom Yerushalayim, where we come back to Jerusalem and the, the game changes. If anything, I would refer to Yom Yerushalayim as the end of Zionism, like the day that Zionism succeeded. It began the next chapter of Jewish liberation. Does that make sense? What I think is exciting about the idea you quoted in the beginning about before celestial Jerusalem can come about, we need the terrestrial Jerusalem, the Jewish people returning as sovereign to Jerusalem, is that mm-hmm. I think a theme that you find throughout our, our heritage is there's a partnership between God and Israel and that God, yes, there are times in the Bible and even in the history of the modern state of Israel where there are events that could be considered miraculous. Uh, perhaps even the return to Jerusalem, uh, the Six-Day War itself, you know, leading up to the war, there were many who thought that could be the end of Israel. And yet in six days, not only was it not the end of our country, but we returned to uh, so many parts of our historic homeland. But what I find to be powerful in this idea is that we're not passive. We are actors in history. We have a role to play. For much of the last 2000 years, we had a spiritual Jerusalem, but for the majority of the Jewish people, we did not have the physical Jerusalem, certainly not as sovereign. And yet, even for most of the Jews, they could not be in Jerusalem at all. And so today that here we are in the sovereign capital of the state of Israel, Jerusalem. That's a big responsibility. It's a privilege. And and also it calls on us to ask ourselves, what is it that we are meant to be doing today to fulfill our purpose and, and mission and destiny as a nation for ourselves and for the whole world? I think for me, the most empowering component of celebrating days like Yom Atzmut and Yom Yerushalayim and celebrating them properly, celebrating them as deeply spiritual days on which the Kadosh Baruch Hu did something, on which you know, a unique aspect of Hashem's divine light enters our world in which something changed meaningfully, you know, historically, not just for our people, but for the whole of mankind. I mean, the 28th of Iyar, Yom Yerushalayim, is essentially the day on which the bridge linking heaven and earth was restored. The portal through which the divine blessing enters our world was reopened. Like, that's a new historic era in which the Shekhinah is no longer in exile. That's huge. And for me, the most empowering part of all of that is that People like you and people like me can do things in our lives that put new chagim, new festivals on the Hebrew calendar, that actually make new dates that we celebrate as not just these shallow nationalist dates, but as deep spiritual dates, you know, in the same way that our ancestors were able to put new festivals on the calendar, whether it's the Maccabim, whether it's uh, Mordechai and Esther, this is real. It makes Jewish history real. And we are really characters in it, that we are really participating in history in a very, very real way. Just uh, 
recently we were around our Shabbat table. My family and I were having a conversation. We were we, the Jewish people celebrated uh, Pesach Sheni, the the, the mm -hmm. second Passover, right. where in the, the Bible it talks about how there were a group of Jews who, uh, in the first Passover after the Jewish people left left Egypt, who they they were not able to uh, celebrate Passover because they were ritually impure, and right. they went to Moses. And they said, look, you know, it, it, it's not fair. We, we weren't able to bring the, the Passover sacrifice. And they could have said, you know, okay, next year we'll do it. All right, we, 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 we caught a break. We don't, have to, we don't have to do it this year. But they said to, to Moses, they said, but we want to do it. We, we, we're not looking for the out. We're, we're looking for the relationship with, with God. We want to fulfill our purpose. We want to be a part of this story. And Moses wasn't sure what to answer them. He, and he went to God and God said, well, we're going to have something called uh, Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. And as our good friend Yishai Fleischer says, uh, Pesach Sheni is not the second chance holiday. It's the holiday for those who want more, who want more relationship, who want to fulfill their destiny and their purpose. And, and over Shabbat recently, uh, I asked my family, I said, well, what other holidays do we have it, that that fit that model and as you just said they mentioned Hanukkah they mentioned Purim uh, and then they mentioned Yom Atzmut and Yom Yerushalayim and we spoke about how we have the ability in almost our lifetimes to be adding days like that it's not just Purim and Hanukkah which go back you know close to, to 2,000 years but but Yom Atzmut is, is 72 years old Yom Yerushalayim a little bit less than that it, it means that in our lifetimes, we have the potential to be adding more days, to be doing things that will become days of, of recognition and celebration for generations to come. And that's an awesome responsibility. Right. Extremely empowering. It's an extremely empowering idea. And just beyond that, and maybe this will get us to the significance of the work you're doing, I tend to look at Yom Yerushalayim as the day on which the Zionist movement succeeded. And of course, when I define Zionism, Zionism is a movement that existed from the 1880s, essentially, until 1967. That is what I would call the Zionist era in Jewish history. I think it's obviously inaccurate and anachronistic to refer to Rabbi Akiva or Bar Kochba as Zionists or Yudah Maccabee as a Zionist. They wouldn't have known what that word means. Uh, just like I think it would be inaccurate to refer to them as Palestinians, they wouldn't know what that word means. Now, Zionism is one of many Jewish liberation movements uh, because it was a very successful liberation movement. We tend to just use the word as a catch-all to refer to every attempt to liberate our land or every attempt for Jews to liberate themselves. But it's really a, a very specific national movement that existed at a very specific period of time and accomplished very specific things. And I think that Yom Yerushalayim, the return to Jerusalem, the Six Day War, 1967, was really the end of Zionism. And it was meant to be the end of Zionism. The last 53 years, I think it's really been our job to formulate the next Jewish liberation ideology that can use the conditions created by Zionism the state, the army, the institutions, etc., in order to fulfill a larger goal. We can also talk about the need to clean up Zionism's mess while protecting its positive achievements. I think a lot of the things Zionism was able to achieve for the Jewish people were achieved in a very messy way, partially because there's no precedent for this, meaning there's, there's no other example of a people that was broken, scattered throughout the world, coming back. You know, the idea of a nation that had been dead for 2,000 years and had been in exile for 2,000 years, actually coming back, reviving its language, restoring its independence, that's unheard of. So it makes sense that it would have happened in a messy fashion. I don't think such movements can be clean. But now that we're in a position of power and to a certain extent stability, I think we have the ability to look back and say, well, is there anything there we need to fix? Absolutely. I, I agree entirely that we are living in a stage where you know, we, we commemorated not long ago, Holocaust Memorial Day. And, you know, through much of the 2000 years of exile and wandering, we were, were, were 
almost living at the mercy in many cases of our Gentile neighbors and masters. And now part of what it means to be sovereign is we need to take responsibility for our, our actions and our inactions and what it means to be the sovereign, what it means to be the majority in, in, a, in a society, uh, something that we have not had to deal with for almost 2000 years. And that I think brings a, a lot of challenges. I, I often liken it to someone who was in a horrific car accident and they had to go through surgeries and, and operations and then rehab and learn how to walk again and to do all sorts of things again until finally they're released from the hospital and they go back into the world and, and slowly, slowly they have to uh, build up their muscles again and, and build up their abilities to do the things that they were once able to do when they were pre, pre, uh, pre-accident. And I think that's what happened to the Jewish people. We went through 2000 years ago when the Romans uh, exiled us, when they destroyed Jerusalem and uh, sold us as slaves and, and made us fight as sport in the Colosseum. Uh, that was a horrible accident. We, we were almost destroyed as a people. And it's taken, you know, over the last 2000 years of, of being persecuted and, and being outside of our natural environment and outside of the way we're meant to be living fully as Jews in our homeland, where we, we learned bad habits and we picked up bad tendencies that are not healthy today for us. And we also forgot how to be sovereign. We forgot what does it mean to uh, have an army? What does it mean to have a government? How do we treat uh, those who are different from us in society, whether different as Jews or different as, as non-Jews? And those are all things that we're relearning. And that's a blessing because those are the types of challenges that the Jewish people are meant to be facing. I, I say that outside of the land of Israel, Jews have problems. And inside the land of Israel, we have challenges because outside the land of Israel, the Jewish people are largely dependent on whoever the sovereign is to overcome whatever the issues that they may be facing as a community are. But in Israel, as sovereign, we have the potential, doesn't mean we always get it right, but we have the potential to overcome any challenge that we're facing, whether that is a military challenge, a political challenge, an economic challenge, an educational challenge, a cultural challenge. We hold all the tools. It's just a matter of our both learning how to use those tools again and, and then using them properly, which we don't always do, but it's the biggest blessing that we've had in 2000 years that we have the ability and the potential to get it right. And God willing, right. the one conditions day, exist. Exactly. The conditions exist. For, and that's really what messianism actually means. You know, like I would say that Christianity is not messianic, whereas Marxism is. And I think we are as well. Like the way I would define messianism is the belief that the conditions exist to create a better world. The conditions exist for Am Yisrael to be Am Yisrael right now, for us to be ourselves again, for the children of Israel to be who we're supposed to be because we are back on our land. We do have the Hebrew language. We do have a sovereign independent state. We do have an army that can defend us. And now we just have to figure out what the content is. Like, what is the content inside? What are the values that drive our society? What identity is expressed in the policies and institutions of the nation state that we created? I think that's kind of the work we have to do today. Uh, You know, we, the vision movement, we refer to that as the post-colonial conversation. Now that you're free, now that you're back on the stage of history again, who are you? Like you have to figure out your identity. And I think it's more true in many ways for the Jewish people than it is for other peoples who have been colonized and dominated and oppressed because we were taken out of our natural habitat. We were basically taken into the lands of our enemies to, who dispossessed us. And we underwent what I would call internal colonization, meaning that we were in the belly of the beast. I don't want to compare oppressions or sufferings, but I think it's clearly a, a more traumatic experience to spend centuries in the lands of your enemies at their mercy uh, with consistent oppression, although the intensity of that oppression was definitely cyclical. There were ups and downs, but for the most part, consistent oppression uh, that radically changed who we are, how we saw ourselves, etc. There's a lot to unpack. In order for us to get healthy, we need to have some real uh, conversations and undergo healing process now that we're back. And I think all that really kicked off after Yom Yerushalayim. I think when we came back to Jerusalem on the 28th of ER 53 years ago, that essentially signaled the beginning of what needs to be this healing process. 
And uh, that healing process will, of course, help us to unearth our identity, figure out who we really are. And I think that will go a long way in helping us overcome many of the challenges confronting the Jewish people today. Uh, but practically speaking, since the Six-Day War, uh, since Koachiyar, since we came back to Jerusalem, there has been a pretty consistent effort by the international community to force Israel to give up the lands that we took possession of, right? Absolutely. And I would say it like this. I, I think that when we came back to life in 1948, when Israel declared a state, this was a theological crisis for the Christian world. Because for centuries, I think Christianity had been validating itself by using the displacement of the Jewish people as a proof of faith. Like, look, the Jewish people are um, outside their land, they're oppressed, they're living at our mercy because they rejected our God. That was essentially the argument. And when we declared a state, the church underwent a, a crisis of faith, which ultimately they resolved, I think, by making two basic arguments. Number one, we gave them a state, meaning Western civilization gave the Jewish people a state because we had mercy on them after the Holocaust. And the second argument was, they're not really in the land of Israel. They're not really in Beit Lechem. They're not really in Hebron. They're not really in Yushalayim. They're not really in Beit El. They're not really in Shiloh. They're not in Shechem. They're in Netanya. They're in Hadera. They're in Tel Aviv. They're not in biblical Israel, and therefore this event doesn't necessarily uh, conflict with what we've been saying. This doesn't really have to challenge us. It could just, we gave them a bomb shelter state on the coast of the Mediterranean. But in 1967, the world experienced a biblical-style miracle. The Jewish people came back to our land, and this miracle that happened in the heart of the 20th century really occurred according to the Jewish interpretation of Scripture. Meaning, I would say that the biggest victim of the Six-Day War was not Egypt, Syria, or Jordan. I would say the biggest victim of the Six-Day War was Christianity. And this drive in Western civilization to force Israel from the lands that we return to is really, in my view, a survival instinct that the West realizes that when the Jewish people come back to life, this signals a new era of human history. Something is going to change. And the dominance of the Christian world, whatever you want to call it, Christian hegemony, capitalism, white supremacy, whatever term you want to use for the kingdom of Esav, for the fourth empire, that is now on the decline as the Jewish people come back to life. Because as our ancestress Rivka was shown when she was pregnant, that these two civilizations in her womb are at odds, and they cannot be simultaneously dominant on the world stage. You know, when Esau is up, Yaakov is down, and the rebirth of Israel signals the eclipse of Edomite civilization. It signals the eclipse of the Fourth Empire. So I think there is a deep drive in Western civilization to take away the historic significance of the Six-Day War. And if you can force Israel to withdraw from the lands that we liberated in that war, then you can make the event historically insignificant. And, and I think for Western civilization, that is actually a self-preservation mechanism. So you, being the director of international affairs for the city of David, which actually works to return the Jewish people to ancient Jerusalem, to the city of David, the city of David Melech, at least from a certain perspective, you are very much participating in efforts to resist Western pressure to withdraw from these parts of our land we returned to in the Six-Day War. But it's clear that there are forces, certainly in Europe, and that, that represents itself also in bodies like the United Nations, where you can see if, I would say, in the first probably 30 years or so of the state of Israel, there was a sense that maybe the first 20 years, 25 years, that it was a temporary project, that it wasn't going to survive. I think it became clear, if not in 1967, then certainly uh, in the aftermath of, of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, that it became understood that Israel, from a military perspective, was too strong to be utterly wiped out and destroyed. And since that time, what 
many in the world, certainly in Europe, uh, have tried to do is if Israel could not be dealt with in a uh, physical way, that Israel was a reality that was not going away, then the best way to undermine Israel was to undermine its legitimacy, to, in a certain sense, try to compare Israel to apartheid South Africa, that we're a bunch of white European colonialists, Afrikaners, who, uh, because of the Holocaust, we came from Europe and we colonized, in this case, the Middle East, and we displaced the, the natives, and uh, really we're, we're just occupiers and foreigners and colonizers, we're thieves. And what a place like the city of David represents, I think better than almost anywhere else uh, in the country, is that the reason why we're here, the reason why we're here in the land of Israel, the reason why we're here in Jerusalem is because this is where our ancestors have been for thousands of years. We're literally on a daily basis. Archaeologists in the city of David are unearthing antiquities that show not simply as a matter of faith, but as a matter of fact, the connection of the Jewish people to Jerusalem going back thousands and thousands of years. We're talking about seal impressions with the names of the figures straight out of the Bible, inscriptions that, that match up with biblical events, coins with Hebrew writing on them. It's an amazing thing. One of the things that I find, one of the discoveries I find to be most uh, moving, uh, about five years ago, an archaeologist named Dr. Elat Mazar, she announces the discovery uh, found just uh, at the footsteps of the southern ascent to the Temple Mount by the Hulda Gates, by Shari Hulda, she finds a small seal, mm -hmm. a small seal impression going back 2,700 years. And the name on that seal in Hebrew is Chizkiyahu ben Achaz, Melech Yehuda, mm -hmm. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, the biblical king Hezekiah, direct descendant of King David. His personal seal impression found just a few years ago. And two years ago, she announced the discovery of another seal impression found just next to it. And that one says on it, Isaiah, and the second word is believed to be the prophet. Mm -hmm. Hezekiah's contemporary. Now, if you ask me, do I believe with or without the seals of Hezekiah and Isaiah that there was uh, King Hezekiah and there was a prophet Isaiah? Of course, I believe it. But is it powerful to actually be able to see and hold in your hand their, their personal seal? Uh, it's incredibly powerful. You get goosebumps, chills. And, and I think even more than that, when you look back to the time of Hezekiah, when you look back to the time of Isaiah, what were they facing? They were facing the same thing that we're facing today, which is foreign powers coming against Jerusalem, mm -hmm. trying to take it away from us. And I think back to their time and say, I look at Jerusalem survived miraculously, uh, according to the description in the Bible. But Jerusalem survived in the face of some of the most powerful empires in the world at that time, trying to take it away. Jerusalem endured. And I look to what we're facing today, and it's the same thing, where you have forces who are trying to take our homeland away from us. And just like our ancestors who were here thousands of years ago, they endured, we will endure also. So specifically, I mean, the city of David is not just about fortifying Jerusalem against attempts to take her from us or divide her, but it's also about returning to our identity, meaning there is a cultural war in Israeli society. And I think that you're almost fighting on a double front there because on the one hand, fortifying the city of David and uh, creating a national park there and uh, bringing Jews to live there makes it difficult to divide the city. But it also returns us to our identity and purpose because there's this cultural war in which those in Israel's westernized ruling class who really just want to see Israel as, you know, an outpost of Western civilization, kind of like a Rhodesia in the Middle East, there's that force, which is a very powerful force, you know, represented by the tycoonim and by the Supreme Court and by many journalists and academics and politicians, etc. It's the majority of wealth in this country is controlled by those people. And the majority of cultural institutions, uh, you know, are controlled by those people. But then there's those of us who want to return to our identity, who want this to be a Jewish state 
in line with what we've been dreaming about for thousands of years, what we've been aspiring to return to, and that it has historical significance. So I think that this return to the city of David Melech, it's a return to our roots. And like you said, it kind of takes these stories from the Tanakh from the realm of mythology to the realm of history. Like it's no longer a fairy tale when I can hold the seal. You know what it's kind of like? And it's also where I live. You know, I happen to live on the mountain where the Maccabees had their partisan camp during our war against the Syrian Greek rule. So when I live on the mountain where Matityahu died and I can see from my window where Yudah Maccabee was killed in battle, and I can go visit their caves and their guard towers, etc. That takes the story of the Maccabim out of mythology. It's like being a Star Wars fan who then visits Tatooine or goes to the Death Star. This is where this happened. I'm now standing where this took place. I'm standing in the home where Luke Skywalker was born, right? That's what it's like. Like these stories that are so important to our national mythology, so important to our identity, are not only confirmed, but made real, driven home when you can hold in your hand a coin or a seal or a garment or or whatever the archeologists are finding that not only confirm your story, but show you that you are standing in a significant place of that story. When when people think of the wonders of the world, they'll think of the pyramids in, in Egypt, they'll think of the Colosseum in Rome, and I think that the city of David and, and some of the discoveries uh, that, that have been unearthed in the city of David not only belong in that league of wonders of the world, but in a certain sense, transcend them. And, and I'll tell you why. Because if someone goes to visit the pyramids in Egypt, you could say, wow, look at what they built 4,000 years ago, and that's amazing. But where's the Egyptian civilization today? I mean, they've long since ceased to exist. The Egypt of today is not the same Egyptians from three and 4,000 years ago. Uh, if you go to Rome and you see the Colosseum, you say, wow, look at the engineering, look what they're able to do. The great Roman Empire does not exist anymore. And yet when you come to Jerusalem today, it's the same Jerusalem. It's the same Jewish people. It's the same language and the same culture and the same holidays and the same God that's being worshipped as our ancestors thousands of years ago. It's not once upon a time there were these people called Jews who lived in a place called Jerusalem and they ceased to exist 2,000 years ago. We're here literally walking in the footsteps of our ancestors, walking in the footsteps of the Tanakh, of the Bible. And, you know, not, after the Six-Day War, there was Israel's uh, poet laureate. His name was Natan Alterman. And he wrote a poem and the poem is called, and then Satan said, and the idea of this poem is Satan. He's, he's disappointed because he's been trying to destroy this enemy of his in, in the poem. It's Israel. He says, how could I overcome this besieged one? He's clever. He's smart. He's strong. He's resourceful. Uh, he, he has ingenuity. How am I going to defeat him? And he says, what will I do? I'm going to strike him in his head and make him forget that his cause is just. And I think that's really what we're facing in Israel today, both from without and also from within, which is, who are we? Why do we have this state? Is this state meant as a refuge? We couldn't cut it in Europe, and so we had, we had no other place to go, and so now we're here in Israel is like a bunker? Or is it something more than that? Uh, are, are we here because we have no choice or are we here because there's a bigger picture, a bigger story that the Jewish people are meant to play out in our homeland. And a place like the city of David with the discoveries that are being made on a daily basis lean towards one of those answers, which is we are literally following in the footsteps of our ancestors. We're part of a bigger story. It's not history. It's the continuation of a story that what what people like King David and King Hezekiah were dealing with in their time, we, their descendants, are, are dealing with today. It's, it's, the same, it's an amazing thing because virtually no other people in the world can say that. We can say that if we choose to embrace our history and our identity and our heritage. And I believe that really is the, 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 the internal conversation that subconsciously is going on within Israel today, which is who are we? Are we people who are here for lack of choice? Or are we people who have been yearning to come back to our homelands so that we could once again return to our uh, mission and purpose that for 2,000 years in a, almost was, was on pause? And obviously the ramifications of those different understandings of self lead to different 
policy preferences. No question. You know, when the British ruled Palestine, they wanted to keep the Arab and Jewish populations at each other's throats so that they can have international legitimacy for ruling here. And it's a very typical British colonial policy. I don't think it's only British, but the British were quite good at dividing and ruling native populations. Now, to a certain extent, I would argue that the more we allow ourselves to be pushed into conflict with Palestinians, the more we invite external pressure to divide our homeland. I think the West is looking, as I said before, for a way to reverse the victories of the Six-Day War. And the easiest way for them to do this is to foster a conflict between us and Palestinians so that there is a legitimate, moral, easily understood reason to divide this land, to force Israel from these lands. So for me, because I think that it's the very essence of our conflict with the Palestinians that creates international legitimacy for the position of dividing this land and actually disenfranchising us and forcing us to withdraw from the cradle of Jewish civilization, I I therefore tend to see us being able to overcome this conflict and being able to unite with the Palestinians as really a key strategy in being able to resist international efforts to shrink our land. I don't think we're going to be able to take the legitimacy of foreign powers to dictate solutions to us away without finding a way to get things right with our neighbors here. And also, I think that from a more divine historical process perspective, I think that at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves questions like, what is the ideal role of a non-Jew in a Jewish society and try to move towards that? Just like, you know, what is an ideal Jewish healthcare system? What is an ideal Jewish banking system? How does the Jewish army fight wars? I think all of these bigger questions that we're coming back to certainly involves our relationship with Palestinians and Jerusalem and African asylum seekers, etc. But the question is, and this might be a bit of a loaded question, but to what extent would you say that the city of David has been caught up in this Arab versus Jew paradigm while doing its work? And to what extent would you say that undermines our sovereignty over Jerusalem? So it's interesting because the city of David today, and just to explain for a moment where the city of David is, we're talking about just outside the old city walls, uh, directly south of the Temple Mount. So, you know, many people up until about 150 years ago, when people thought, where's the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of King David, King Solomon, uh, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, everyone thought it was inside the walls of the old city until 1867. And from that time until today, the city of David, an 11-acre ridge just south of the Temple Mount, uh, has become one of the most archaeologically excavated sites in the world. And it's understood that the original biblical Jerusalem was the city of David and the Temple Mount. Uh, What we know as the old city of Jerusalem today goes back about a thousand years after King David. So we're talking just outside the walls of the old city. Now, when we talk about the city of David today, it's a mixed Jewish-Arab neighborhood. And what's interesting is that in the city of David, from the beginning, the goal has been for it to be a place where, and I I don't want to say this as a, uh, to come across as a kumbaya kind of thing, but the idea has always been that Jews and Arabs are going to be living together in the city of David and to have as good uh, relations as possible with our neighbors. And to give an an example of what that looks like in practice, just to give a few examples, you know, over the last, if you go back uh, two, three years ago, you had what was known as the stabbing intifada or the knife intifada, where there were lots of, in Jerusalem, uh, stabbing attacks in the old city and and other parts of Jerusalem. And the city of David was was quiet. Uh, It's an amazing thing that uh, in a place where you don't have, uh, for the most part, you don't have any uh, armed policemen uh, wandering around the streets, patrolling the streets, people are walking freely, whether you're Jewish or Arab, whether you're old or young, people walk around uh, and you're not traveling around in armored cars within the city of David or anything like that. And one of the reasons for that is, is is the goal overall amongst the Jewish and Arab residents is, is to respect each other. It does not mean 
that politically everyone sees eye to eye, but it means the value within the neighborhood. And I can tell you from the perspective of the city of David and the Jewish residents within the city of David, it is to recognize that every person, Jewish and non-Jewish, is created in the image of God and to be respectful of your neighbor. It doesn't matter who they are, whether you agree with them politically or not, you treat them with respect. And I think that that's also on the whole been mirrored by our Arab neighbors in the city of David, where again, they have respectful relations with their neighbors. For some of them, what that means is when you have weddings and other life cycle events, they invite their Jewish and Arab neighbors to those events. For others, it means borrowing a cup of milk or sugar from their neighbors. And others, it means when you see them in the morning passing by, you'll nod and say good morning. But it's, it's positive, respectful relations. And uh, to, to that point, when there are disturbances in the neighborhood, almost in every single case, it's come from European-funded NGOs that try to incite many of the residents against their Jewish neighbors and against the city of David, where you have outsiders who, for their own political agendas, try to destabilize the, the life that exists within the city of David. And there are many, many examples. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you one that really was a disturbing one. You go back a little more than a decade ago, and the Jerusalem municipality, together with the city of David and some other bodies, wanted to improve the infrastructure within the city of David. We're talking about paving the roads, fixing the sidewalks, putting more benches and, and light posts and everything for the benefit of everyone who lives in the city of David, for, for the Jews, for the Arabs, literally for everyone who lives in the neighborhood would benefit from it. And what happened? An Israeli NGO funded a European government uh, funded Israeli NGO went to the court and uh, sued against it. And they said that the Jerusalem municipality did not file all the right permits and paperwork, and, and therefore uh, they should not be allowed to carry out this infrastructure project. And it turned out that this uh, NGO was correct, that the municipality had not filed all the proper paperwork and whatever. And so the judge ruled in the favor of this European-funded NGO. But in his ruling, it was uh, Justice Solberg. And he says in his ruling to this European-funded NGO, he says, you guys have the attribute of stone which is not only do you not want to help the people of this neighborhood, but you don't want anyone else to help them either. Meaning your interest is not for the quality of life or, or for the welfare of the people who are living in the city of David. You don't want them to have better roads and better sidewalks and better parks. and be You want them to suffer. Why? Because then you could go and show that Israel's neglecting this neighborhood in Eastern Jerusalem and therefore it should one day maybe become Palestine or, or who knows what. But because that's what your agenda is, you're willing to uh, help ensure the suffering of those, in this case, the Arabs living in this neighborhood. And it, it was sad because the municipality then just moved on to other projects. And the people who lost were the people who live in, in this area. And Jews and Palestinians, both. Yeah, like both yeah, populations both, lost. Both populations lost, but the reason why this NGO was opposing it was not because of the Jewish side of it. What they wanted to help strengthen was the perception that Arabs living in this part of Jerusalem are being neglected by the mechanisms of the municipality and of the state. And therefore, this should be Palestine one day. And to a certain extent, you do recognize that Palestinian neighbors of Jerusalem are being neglected by the municipality. Uh, you know, I think that one of the challenges when we talk about Eastern Jerusalem, the way mm -hmm. that I think every, uh, every, I don't say every country, but certainly countries that, that have, let's call it uh, Western style uh, systems of government, that the way, the way it works is people vote, they elect their elected representatives. These representatives then will try to the extent possible to give budgets and allocations and other resources to the people and um, populations that- To put the them constituency. Power, to the constituents with the hope of getting reelected. Now in Eastern Jerusalem, for various reasons, the Arab population in Eastern Jerusalem has on principle not participated in elections and municipal elections in Jerusalem, which then means when it comes to portfolios being distributed, when it comes to budgets being allocated, they do not have advocates within the municipality. Now, that's not to say that the municipality shouldn't look out for all its residents. And I think over the last couple of years, uh, it's been doing that more and more for all parts of the city. But 
there are consequences for decisions and the decision of the Arab residents of Eastern Jerusalem to choose not to, to participate in the uh, elections that take place in Jerusalem leads to their having a, a lack of advocates to advocate for projects that would best serve their, their community. And I think that that's something that needs to be kept in mind when we talk about what's going on in Eastern Jerusalem today. Right. I mentioned before that I think the only way to fully resist the two-state solution and the partition of our land is for Jews and Palestinians to unite. Like, I think that it's important, especially those Jews most deeply connected to our people's story, most deeply rooted in our land, most fully living the aspirations of our people. We are specifically the sector of Israeli society that should be building bridges with Palestinian society, specifically the more activist sectors of Palestinian society. Now, that's for two reasons. Number one, because I think that will hammer the nail into the coffin of the two-state solution, uh, but also because I think we need to move forward in terms of our own national development. It's important to start to engage our neighbors. I think that, first of all, to define what it means to be a non-Jew in a Jewish society is an important part of us figuring out what kind of society we're creating and what values it expresses, but also us relearning to be ourselves a little bit to a certain extent and kind of unearthing aspects of our identity that Palestinians and others in the region might have held on to while Jews, specifically Ashkenazim, were very, very far and deep into exile elsewhere and losing certain aspects of our identity. So for whatever reason, whether it's to resist a two-state solution, whether it's genuinely to make peace as a goal of Jewish liberation, to unite with Palestinians, to create Semitic unity as a goal of Jewish liberation, or simply to move forward in incorporating into this already unified national religious sector that I experience myself as being a part of, the universalism, meaning I think that's like the missing element, certainly according to Rav Kook in Orat Tchia Yudchet, that ultimately we need this super camp that unites the nationalist, religious, and universalist powers of the Jewish people into this one super ideology. And I think the missing element is obviously the universalism and the way we relate to the other in our society and the way we engage Palestinians obviously will bring us closer to universalism. But for whatever reason, in in the course of my piecework, I tend to prefer the question, what am I contributing to this situation? Meaning as opposed to saying, well, why is it his fault? What are they doing wrong? What are Palestinians doing wrong? What is the European doing wrong? It's important to know what the European Union is doing. It's important to know what the United States is doing. It's important to know what the Palestinian Authority is doing, because in many cases, they really do behave as enemies and they need to be neutralized in order for Jewish liberation to progress. But at the same time, what I have the most control over is what I'm doing. Like, what am I doing that contributes to this conflict? What am I doing that contributes to a situation that's not my ideal situation and not their ideal situation? You know, I often say when, whether I'm giving tours of Hebron or parts of the Shomron, and this also holds true for Jerusalem, obviously, I want more Jews to live in the Shomron. I want more Jews to live in Hebron. I want more Jews to live in Ir David, the city of David. The question is, how are we living? How are we living in these places and how does that impact other populations? So to what extent is that even a question with the city of David or in the work that you do? Is is that ever a question in terms of how will the move we make or whatever we build or whatever step we take here or even the archaeological digs, to what extent does this impact relations between Jews and Palestinians on the ground? And if so, can it be done different? So when the city of David first was was really getting started with the excavations and and the various uh, tourism elements of of the project, one of the biggest goals of the organization was how can this bring benefit to all the residents of the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. to the Jewish residents, to the Arab residents, and to that end, a very high percentage of the employees in the city of David were mm-hmm. local Arab residents from the neighborhood, also Jewish residents from the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. it was uh, something that we said, if the people living with here- With the same uh, salaries, meaning were they, they were receiving uh, equal salaries? Equal, everyone was being paid uh, in a certain, meaning if, if you had uh, an Arab or, or a Jew doing the same type of work, they would receive the same type yeah. of salary and the same, right. and the same benefits, benefits meaning, meaning sick days, 
uh, pension mm -hmm. payments, national health insurance, um, all, all the same types of benefits, they were all being treated the same. Because the mm -hmm. idea was if we're going to be running a site that's going to be bringing hundreds of thousands and, and as of 2019, nearly a million people through the area, on the one hand, it's a blessing. On the other hand, it sometimes could be an inconvenience for, for people living in the area. And therefore, how can we make this something that will be as beneficial to everyone as possible? And it worked mm -hmm. for many years. That was a model that worked until you had elements uh, among them, the northern branch of the Islamic movement that issued a, a fatwa that essentially told those Arab residents of the neighborhood who were working at the city of David, essentially said to them, you can't work with the Jews anymore. And at first people didn't really listen. And then cars started getting torched. A couple of legs were broken and people very quickly understood that they could not continue working. And people many, quit their jobs. People quit their jobs. And, and many of those same people still live in the neighborhood where we're friendly with them mm -hmm. and they're struggling. And it's, mm -hmm. it's sad because these were people who were being treated respectfully as equals, as partners. And because there were those who did not like the idea of Jews and Arabs living side by side, of working together, that is not the case today as much as it once was. And, and that's unfortunate because, you know, again, the city of David, it's King David. Uh, it, it connects to the Tanakh, to the Bible. Obviously, there is a very central Jewish element or aspect to what's happening at the site. At the same time, though, that doesn't mean it can't be done in a way that's inclusive and as a benefit to as many people as possible. But that said, there are those who don't want that. There are those who will do whatever they can to discourage that type of spirit from, from taking hold, whether it's the Europeans or others. Uh, there are those who do not want to see that type of reality. And there's certainly many, many, many layers to this conflict, unfortunately. What's happening in this land has many players, many interests. The Jews and Palestinians on the ground are really only... Uh, I was going to say two of the parties, but really we're split into more than two because there's so many different camps within Israeli society and so many different camps within Palestinian society that it would be inaccurate to just say two of the parties. But beyond the Jews and Palestinians, there are so many other parties, so many other interests at play. And I'm sure you've experienced this as a really complicated web to maneuver, especially in your position, which is clearly a very diplomatic position. You have to maneuver some very, very difficult, not just difficult, but the conflict is so tangled. It's definitely not as simple as just offering jobs to the Palestinians in the neighborhood that you're building in, because as you know, the city of David is not just a national park, and it's not just returning to our roots, and it's not just uh, fortifying Jerusalem and making it impossible to divide. It's so many things on our side and it's so many things on their side that in order to move forward, we're really going to have to unpack all of this and compartmentalize and try to heal uh, ideally together. I'll tell you a story. Uh, it happened probably mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. There was a, a group that came to visit the city of David from the University of Michigan, made up of mm -hmm. deans and professors and some students. And among the students, there were a number of Muslim students in full religious, religious attire. Some of them covered literally, you know, the, the female students covered from head to toe. And one of them, she says to me, you know, I get you guys have a history here, but why do you need to live here? Why, mm -hmm. why is it so important for you to live here? And so I said to her, I said, I said you look to me like a person of faith. Is that a fair assessment? She said, yes. And I said, I, I imagine that you take the, the teachings of the Quran uh, very seriously. She says, absolutely. And I said, I imagine for you to be able to walk and visit the places where the Prophet Muhammad uh, would have been, where were the most seminal events in, in the Quran and Islam, where they took place, is, is something that would be meaningful to you. She said, absolutely. And so I said, I understand why a place like Mecca place like Medina and even Jerusalem, why those are places that hold deep significance for you. And she said, absolutely. I said, well, the Jewish people are no different. I said, the Jewish people, we are an ancient people. And Jerusalem, perhaps there's no other place in our heritage, in the Tanakh, where our people are rooted any more than Jerusalem, meaning our ancestors were here. And, and this is where we were shaped as a nation here in Jerusalem, literally in the city of David. And it's not just because I believe it, but because every single day, 
antiquities are being unearthed, which are showing this is where my people have been living for thousands of years. And so I said to her, I respect your feelings of connection to Jerusalem. I said, I would ask you to respect mine. Just as I respect that you have your heritage and your beliefs that make certain places central to who you are, this is what Jerusalem represents to the Jewish. This is who we are. This is where we're from. This is where our identity was formed and continues to play itself out in the world. And I was, I was actually a bit surprised where she just nodded almost in, in respect and in acceptance of, okay, I appreciate that answer. I think what she was expecting me to say was something from more of the Israel advocacy playbook of Israel's a democracy and people can live wherever they want and things like that. But I said, we're native people. This is our homeland. This is where we're from. This is where, where our identity was shaped and formed. And, 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 and I, I respected who she was and her beliefs and her faith. And I think she then respected mine and said, okay, I, I, I appreciate that. Doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything, but I think when it's framed in a way that one respects the other, but also has respect for yourself and says, I'm not here because of the Holocaust. And I'm not here because Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East or, or any other talking point. I'm here because this is where my ancestors have been for thousands of years. Uh, I, I'm not a stranger here. I'm not here because I couldn't, can't be somewhere else. You know, we, we found um, them not there because of a crime committed against. Absolutely. Them. It's not just that our ancestors are from here. I would say this, you know, I often say when people ask for, you know, how do the Jews living in Judea and Samaria understand themselves? Uh, my answer is, well, first of all, we're not monolithic. You know, a Jew in Hebron is different from a Jew in Maledumim and a Jew in Yitzhar is different from a Jew in Betel. But there is an ideological common denominator. I would say that for the most part, the way we're experiencing this is that we're a proud ancient people from this land. We were unjustly expelled against our will. We somehow managed to retain our identity against all odds for thousands of years and actually managed to come back to life. And now we experience the international community trying to displace us again. And therefore, we're doing whatever we can to resist those attempts to displace us. And so far, the best method we found is to populate as much of the territory as possible in order to make it impossible for people to remove us again. That's essentially what's happening. And I think Palestinians are very peripheral to that story. And they actually occupy a unique position where they could be allies or they could be enemies, depending on how they behave and depending on how, how we relate to them and depending on how much the two of us allow outside actors to manipulate us into conflict with one another. And I imagine that Ir David could be an example of something really positive. If, uh, I mean, a lot of the, the stories you're telling are stories that a lot of people don't know. I think when people think of Ir David, people outside of Israel, not Jews and sometimes Palestinians to their supporters, they basically see this, you know, national park used as some kind of colonial project to dispossess Palestinians in this neighborhood, you know, near the old city, because the Jews are trying to uh, build a settlement. That's kind of how it's perceived. And I think it's important that we point out it's much more complicated than that. And even when we find ourselves in situations where we're using this methodology, I mean, in this case, let's say national parks or archaeological digs, et cetera, the motivation, certainly what I'm hearing from you and, and also what I know about the work that you're doing and the people involved, the motivation has very little to do with dispossessing Palestinians. It's about fortifying Jerusalem and returning to our roots. And depending on how various actors react to that or facilitate, et cetera, it could lead to any number of possibilities, which kind of brings me to the last question. What's your hope for the future? What do you expect to see 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What does Jerusalem look like? So I want to share with you to answer that question, an incredible discovery that is being unearthed literally as we speak. Uh, back in 2004, at the very southern end of the city of David, uh, there was a road, beneath the road there was a sewage pipe. And the municipality had to send in construction crews to repair the sewage pipe. But the city of David is not just another municipality or part of uh, a municipality. The city of David is, is the heart of Jerusalem, biblical Jerusalem. And therefore, 
in the city of David, when a sewage pipe bursts, you don't only send in construction crews, you also send in archaeologists. And so the archaeologists are overseeing, you have bulldozers and dump trucks doing their work, digging down, repairing the sewage pipe. And the archaeologists, they start to hear scraping and scratching. It does not sound right. They clear everyone out. And it turns out that in repairing the sewage pipe, they had unearthed a set of steps going back 2,000 years ago. And there's only one other set of steps the archaeologists understood in Jerusalem that looked just like those steps found at the southern part of the city of David. And those are the steps leading up to the southern ascent of the Temple Mount by the, the Holda Gates, the steps that would have led 2,000 years ago up into the temple, atop the Temple Mount. And so the archaeologists immediately tried to understand what's the connection between the steps leading up to the Holda Gates and the steps down below at the very southern tip of the city of David. And they realized they had uncovered the steps leading down to the ancient Brechat HaShiloach, the Shiloach Pool or the Pool of Siloam. Now, what is the Shiloach Pool? Well, we know that three times a year, our ancestors would have to go on pilgrimage up to the temple. We're talking about Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, when our ancestors were mandated by the Torah to go up to the temple, to the Beit HaMikdash. Now, before you can go up to the, to the Beit HaMikdash, to the temple, you have to purify yourself. The historian Josephus says that 2,000 years ago, you would have had nearly, two, nearly 3 million people going on pilgrimage. That's a lot of people. The Shiloach pool was the size of two Olympic-sized swimming pools to accommodate those hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, who would be purifying themselves before going up to the temple. So then the question the archaeologists had was, well, if we know where the Shiloach pool is, and we know where the temple stood on the Temple Mount, about a half mile north from there. Well, then how did everyone get from the pool all the way up to the temple? And so they widened the excavation. And what they discovered and what is being literally excavated as we speak right now is the ancient pilgrimage road. The road, Yehuda, that your ancestors, my ancestors walked on 2,000 years ago when they went on pilgrimage in purity from the Shiloach pool all the way up to the footsteps of the Temple Mount. This road comes out at the corner of the Western Wall, at the Hulda Gates. This is the road, not a road near here, not stones that look like those. This is the actual pilgrimage road that our ancestors walked on when they went up to the Temple 2,000 years ago. And along the road, you see shops and stalls where people would be buying uh, something for a temple offering or, or other things that they would need for the temple service, uh, maybe a souvenir, maybe a hat, a bottle of water, it's hot outside. Uh, and, you know, the prophet Isaiah talks about that Jerusalem will be a house of prayer for all nations. And, and my hope is, and my dream, and my wish, and my prayer is that 10 years from now, when this excavation, God willing, is completed long before then, where people from all over the world will be able to come and walk from the Shiloh Pool, from the Pool of Siloam, up along the pilgrimage road through the city of David, coming out at the footsteps of the Temple Mount and being able to celebrate Jerusalem. And again, Jerusalem may mean different things for different people. And uh, it's not for me to tell uh, if uh, there's a Muslim group that comes from some part of the Middle East that's coming to visit uh, Jerusalem. They may explain it differently than I would explain it. And others will explain it the way that they want to explain it. But if we can get to a place where we could all celebrate Jerusalem and, and respect that Jerusalem means something to all of us, and it may mean something different, uh, but I don't need to be threatened if uh, there are Muslims who feel a connection to Jerusalem. I would only hope that they can get to the point where they don't have to feel threatened by my connection to Jerusalem and my aspirations in Jerusalem. I think that Jerusalem as an idea is big enough for all of us. Uh, what it looks like on the ground, okay, that's part of the challenge that we spoke about in the beginning of sovereignty and what are the policies that have to be put into place uh, that will make it work for everybody. But that's my hope, that people will be able to come walk along the pilgrimage road, walk in the footsteps of our ancestors, understand what Jerusalem was, understand what Jerusalem is, and, and God willing, what it can be one day, and to fulfill that vision of it, bring a house of prayer for, for all nations, a place that will unite and not divide. The trick is just getting from where we are right now to that. 
How do we go from the narrow Jewish nationalism to the Hebrew universalism? Jerusalem is obviously central to that. Zev Ornstein of the City of David Foundation, Director of International Affairs, thank you so much. Uh, Let listeners know where they can hear more from you, where they can see more of your work, how they can come and take a tour with you maybe. What website should they be going to? Uh, you can go to the, the City of David website, cityofdavid.org.il uh, forward slash okay. en. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on, on other social media, Facebook, and you'll you can find everything about the City of David there. Great. Uh, Zev, once again, thank you so much for joining me. This is Yudah Kohen, Brit Chazon, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm wishing all of our listeners a Yom Yerushalayim Sameach. And of course, you can check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 27.